Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 119 with Appendage DP Powell Robinson. Enjoy! Have you been uh, have you been watching anything cool recently? Uh, you know wow, what did I what did I start? Uh, I've been enjoying uh, Fallout House of Usher. Um, that's been- oh no shit. Okay, yeah, I've yeah. literally only seen billboards for it, so I don't even. <laughs> yeah, no, I was you know I I like all of this stuff, but this one in particular, there's something I don't know what they did photography wise to quite make it look the way they did, but I haven't seen anything quite like it. Oh geez, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, the the it's funny because like I I was interviewing a couple people who you know couldn't work because of the writer's strike, and then yeah. so they were like watching tons of shit, and then I had a few people who were working in the UK that were like, I'm currently shooting something and want nothing to do with a screen. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's usually how I am when I'm working, but yeah, it's, it's been a little a little quiet. Yeah, has has anything changed for you uh, since the writer's strike ending, or is SAG pretty much? created the exact same amount of work yeah the the sag halt i mean I, I what it means to me is like at least there will be a lot of stuff that has now been back into development and started writing again so hopefully mm-hmm. when the actors figure everything out there'll be a lot of stuff to do that's the that's the hope yeah how are you uh occupying your time with all the breaks you know i'm I work besides shooting i also do a bit of producing and and writing work and so i've just been been doing that i have two shows that um one i wrote one that i'm just producing on and so a lot a lot of stuff to do for those helping uh yeah just helping get those off the ground right on yeah i saw that you um which wouldn't necessarily be affected by the sag strike i don't think but you you shot whole grip of music videos yeah that's how i got into this whole thing was uh was music video so i'm up to God, God knows how many now, but yeah, that's, that was my beginning. So. Yeah. Well, it was, it was cool because I, how, how old are you? Uh, 30, how old am I? 31. Yeah. Like, <laughs> about this, I've done that. I'm 33 and I keep on going, fuck, really? Yeah. Like that's, man, I thought it was 29. Uh, did we get here? <laughs> yeah. So roughly the same age, but it felt like the same thing happened where like, we all tell me if this is you, uh, you know, you grew up watching like, Spike Jones music videos and skateboard films, you know, Fight Club comes yeah. out, whatever. And you're like, this is all rad. The Matrix, I've talked about the Matrix a million times. And then, uh, and then every, everyone who could have theoretically been a mentor was like, well, music videos are where you're going to cut your teeth. And then we get here, no music videos. There was like seven people. You yeah. must have been one of them that got all the music videos. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when I was right when I left school, it was, I would say the market was probably a little bit bigger, but also there was more room because like TikTok has changed the whole like face of, of music video production. Now, like people don't want to pay for pull a bunch of music videos and they can pay for TikTok videos that get them more views. And so you've got a select number of big artists who are able to do actual music videos. And then, yeah, the the sort of 5K to 15 or 30K music video range, I I don't know if it even exists really as big as like that was that was how I came up was like, yeah, I graduated in the, you know, the five to 30 range was what everyone was doing for the first like two years out of school. And so, yeah, you know, but all those, all, yeah, all the ones that I got were two to five. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, there's always like someone has a buddy who's a musician and then you're like, oh, but is the music good? It's good. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll do it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he just needs you to, he's got, a, there was a lot of, speaking as a producer, or you could probably speak to this as a producer, the importance of like micro producing for stuff like that. Like my friend has, my friend's old roommate owns, owns a bar that won't be open till two so we can shoot in there kind of yep. like stuff, you know? All the friend deals, all the time, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any uh, interesting ones you can think of when from the lower budget days where you had to pull off uh, a few miracles? Okay, yeah. Uh, I did, um, remember, you remember Fetty Wap? That's yeah. my way. Yeah, so that was one of the earliest ones I did, and we obviously had no car rigs at the time. We didn't have, like, a you know any sort of Russian, or not the Ukraine arm for the... the uh, no, it's just called Yo Crane. Yeah, so I there's uh, no arm. <laughs> no, so instead we got a uh, a, a pass van with like with suicide doors. <laughs> well, I had an easy rig on, and we ratchet strapped my easy rig to the like the the passenger seats, and I just hung out the back of the van, and we filmed all the stuff with me just yeah suspended by one ratchet strap or a bungee cord, just yes barreling down some side street. So you That's know, OSHA approved. Very, very much. Yeah. That clearly a union job. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the larger, I looked at your IMDb, I didn't write down a list, but like you, you are working with some of the largest, the one I remember Jack White for what's the trick. Great. Which is a great track. But, um, uh, what do those higher, uh, budget music videos kind of look like production wise? It's, is it still the kind of same chaos? You just got a lot more going on or is, or is there a certain smoothness to it? Uh, you know, some of them. A lot like the the ones like the ones I've done for like Doja Cat or Young Blood or those those like the big top tier pop star ones. Those are pretty much run and paid like commercials for the most yeah. part. There's still a scrappiness to them because music videos always like there's so many things between the artist and the label and like what everyone else wants. Like you're always adding stuff or changing things, and so you'll build a whole setup and the artist might show up and be like, I don't like it. Like, okay, what's the video now? Like, I like that corner of the room over there. Let's shoot over there. And then you just have to right. pivot, just figure it out. Luckily, you have the gear and the people to pivot. Um, whereas on the smaller music videos, when it's pivoting is you only had the money for one, one bank of lights, <laughs> like one bit of set design, so you can't. Uh, so there's still a lot of improv, more so than in commercials. But, you know, something like that Jack White, the What's the Trick one, very small budget. You, you'd think it was not, but, like, there's a weird thing going on where even big artists... Um, you know, just because of between all the split out revenue, how many different people are making content now and just like where, where stuff is being streamed, they aren't putting in as much as they used to. Like, whereas like someone, a star of Jack White size in like the nineties or the eighties might've done like a million dollar music video. That was, I mean, who knows, but it was, I was under a hundred K. I was like probably 50. Yeah. And so like, but you know, you just, again, it's sort of what you were saying. You do it for the, the love of the song. And like, I would, you know, I, if they told me he wasn't paying, I've been a fan of Jack White since high school. I would have just fucking flooded to Tennessee and done it myself anyway. Like, uh, right. sometimes you just have to do the ones that make you feel good because a lot of the times you don't get to choose what you're working on and it just, things just come in. Um, but yeah, 60 mil Jack White, that was an absolute no brainer. So, yeah. Well, and it, it's something too about like, not that that's necessarily, I mean, it's low budget in, in the grand scheme of things, but like even lower budget stuff, I've always found that taking those gigs or taking gigs where you're just like, you know what? I like this person. I'll do him a favor. You end up meeting other people, like maybe let's yeah. say the production designer on, on what's the trick. 
and and they're like, oh yeah, I was the production designer on, you know, the Avengers, whatever. And they're like, I just like this song. And then you end up, I think people flip, they think like every low budget film is a waste of time. And it's like, you're going to end up meeting people who are also, you know, coming down for the love of the project. And then they can kind of. My gaffer of, of seven years, I met on a, a job, a, oh God, longer now. Woof. Uh, I met on a job. I did a favor for a producer friend, like, Hey, our dolly group bailed. And this was like when I was really getting started, I was, you know, I was shooting, but I was still doing a little bit of gaffing work and a little bit of just whatever to pick up money. And I need a, I need a dolly grip. I dolly grip. Like I, I, I left school basically just shooting and gaffing, but came out dolly grip for a day. And I met my gaffer and I've been working with that guy ever since. But like that, you know, that's, it is true. Like you never know the smallest project, the weirdest opportunity. You will meet someone who can probably change your whole career. Yeah, well, I, I was uh, reading up on you, and it does seem like you still work with a lot of the people, including like Appendage and shit, uh, that you met at USC. Yep. And uh, obviously all of us at the time wanted to go to UFC. Now having done 120-something episodes of this podcast, I found that what we all should have wanted was going to AFI. But <laughs> those people are just crushing it. Um, but uh, how important was... SC, but, uh, film school. The best thing the SC film school gave me was all the contacts I've got now. Um, I, the person that I, I written with and produced with now, we have a moving on after Austin film festival, uh, I'm going this week. Um, oh. he and I were freshman dorm neighbors. The guy who edited that lived down our dorm hall. He's one of our closest friends. The guy who directed it was his neighbor. So like we were all on one big dorm that like dorm floor it was the the film floor actually in the Fradius dorm of uh, USC yeah but uh so yeah we we just all uh we stayed friends that long and say you know like Anna I met in the like the intermediate film production class and I just thought her work was awesome and so when it came time to do our senior theses uh we co-DP'd a thesis together and that's how we met oh cool and really got to know each other's working style and since then I've shot barring one thing where I had surgery and I couldn't do it. Um, I shot basically everything else of hers or I've been on set in some capacity for her since then. So that was, yeah, like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. And then Alex, Alex Familian, the editor and producer on Appendage, I went to high school with. We were in like film, they gave they had a little film class at high school for us, which was cool. And yeah, we've known each other since then. So. Yeah, it was, I was going to say, it's, it was nearly the same thing for me. We had a arts dorm at, at yeah. went to Arizona State and, um, we all, we're all still in touch for the most part. There was like, tw I, I, I'm from California, but like, you know, about 12 of us moved back to LA and like one of them's gotten pretty good at acting and is like in a bunch of television shows and, you know, one's a producer now. And then my, my buddy, Nick, um, was always into documentary, just was nominated for his Emmy, uh, an Emmy for his doc it, this year that this, yeah. So it's, it's like, it's weird how if even Anyone can be someone. <laughs> yeah. You know, these are all yeah, people that, at ASU that were just partying around, you know, and then now success. They say that by, it's like that's the first orientation day um, at the film school at USC. They, they say like, look at the person on your left and your right. Like you might be working with them if, in 10 years now, once you graduate, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. I think that's one of the, the things I wish they kind of drilled home more the longer you went there is like, 
you know, uh, I think you think when you're around, like, well, if I just do really good work, like everyone will yeah. want to hire me. And like, that's what matters. Do really good work. It's like, no, you got to be someone that people want to work with. And, and that goes back all the way to who you beat in college. And if you're, uh, you know, uh, a dick, uh, that can pay off 15 years later down the line when someone will hire you. And I'm sure, unfortunately, I probably run into that at some point. We all do. But like, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting just how, how, how people come back around to like, I don't know, people that I haven't seen in, in 12 years. Someone like, hey, I just started this new production company. Thought he had that one thing you shot in school. And it was like, hey, we're doing that now. You want to come out and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, I certainly had to do some image rehab coming out of college. Not a lot, but enough that it took a minute. But there is definitely one person that comes to mind from our film school that literally just blazed a trail through Hollywood. Like, I would hear his name yeah. come up on random sets with like, ah, fuck that guy. And I'm like, Geez, you really can like, you can screw things up if you're, you know, super full of yourself and think you're God's gift of filmmaking. It's tough too, because when you're that young and you think you know the right way to do things, like you, you're like, oh, well, I like, I've already shot two things and they're great. Like I know what I, and you, 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 I don't know. I think it's easier to be difficult a little bit when you're younger and you haven't had the experience of being humbled repeatedly. Like, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's a very, very important post film school process is getting kicked down to the fucking ground. Yeah. starting your place a little bit once once you left um but you know and end of the day yeah you find the people that you're the happiest working with and usually those are the ones that you go the farthest with well and i think that actually brings up a great you know getting get a kick to the ground repeatedly <laughs> it's actually like a <laughs> this is going to sound weird let me let me try to think this through uh it's like a comfortable place to be like i don't think in film school that they give you enough time to realize you will not be shooting like what what is it? Tier one, tier what's the high tier? Tier three? Yeah. I don't yeah, know. I've yeah. got tiers. The number uh, they they ascend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh stuff like off rip. You're gonna be shooting, you know, things that as a film student you look down on. The joke always being like mayonnaise commercials or whatever. And then you end up having more fun on that than anything else because they're smaller, you're with your friends, whatever. And it's yeah. far more comfortable. Yeah, first feature. I did out of school budget was like 70 K and you would think that that would be a nightmare for everyone involved. And it was, but it was also the experience that I still talk with people the most, like the crew that was on that. We're also a lot of friends. Uh, I mean, Michelle who did PD appendage actually did a couple days of art direction on that one. And so, you know, again, it's just always, it always comes back around, but people still reference that shoot as like, we were all living in the mountains together in a cabin shooting like a slasher in the cabin we were living in. So there were times that it was, you know, we're shooting a scene and there's people who are legitimately sleeping in the corner of the same room that the set was in as we were filming. Yeah. And just one of the craziest, like some people were still in college while we were shooting it. It was wild, but yeah, the small ones can often be the, the most, uh, life-changing. Yeah. Well, and then after that one, your next bigger one, you, you totally shot on an iPhone or a couple iPhones, right? Yeah. 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 Threshold. Um, that was, uh, so Patrick who, I've now done two movies with, um, produced that new one with as well. Um, we were waiting on money for a bigger film. We'd, we'd been commissioned to write a script and they were, you know, they were like, yeah, it's going to be two to $3 million. It'll be great. Um, and it was just taking so long to get off the ground. We, we got to do something. We got to like, got to just occupy our brain somehow. So yeah, we did a, an 11 day improvised road trip horror movie and it was 
very small crew. It was us two, two actors and, and our producer. And just, we drove to like Utah and down to the border and back basically. And why we just did it for us. Honestly, we thought it was like, well, we might as well just, let's just, let's, let's do this weird experiment, have some fun to keep ourselves occupied. And then, you know, I think because it was such an organic fun process, the movie just came out actually pretty well and uh, sold it to Arrow and love Arrow. Yeah, they the man, we were so stoked. We could not believe we were getting a Blu-ray, like an arrow Blu-ray release on an iPhone movie. That was one of the funniest career moments, I think. But yeah, cool process. Because Arrow's Arrow's basically uh <laughs> young hot criterion at yeah. this point. <laughs> yeah, for, for for cult horror, exactly. Yeah, they're they're great. Well, even they've really expanded. So I have a pretty You're right, they have expanded beyond that now. Yeah, like the I I I don't wanna say that uh uh, RoboCop was like the first one. That was certainly a big one. But yeah, I got a bunch of real shit. Do you have a Do you have a large physical media collection that's been real newsy lately? And I certainly do. You know, I don't. But I also don't have a lot of stuff. I'm not. I like. But so uh, the room suggests you should see this nonsense. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm. Yeah. I. I. I actually like. I have the same five black T-shirts and pairs of black jeans and i i'm i just like the least amount of decision making possible and so yeah, yeah yeah i keep things simple and clutter free my brain is already a mess so i you know helps me out yeah the uh that's something that i have recently been thinking about even just down to like clothes but something that uh uh shout out to my friend joey Famelli. he shoots with um adam savage for his tested youtube channel has been going for like a decade okay. And one thing that Adam uh, said once that has always stuck with me is like, and this <clears throat> goes down to more like when when problems arise on set, but it still kind of applies to everything. Is like if something happens and it and it that you can't control, like it just hacks a decision off of your or it hacks a limb off your decision tree, yeah. which makes things easier. The less limbs you have on the decision tree, the easier your whole life is. So being cluttered, having too many options of things to wear, stuff to do, m things to spend money on, places to go. You know, it actually makes life worse in some ways. I hear, you know, the, the thing that blows my mind the most is like people talking about like my set outfits. Like, oh, I got to get my set outfits ready for the shoot. This like I mean, the last <laughs> thing on my mind is what I'm going to wear when I'm filming. I, I need that to be the last thing on my mind because I'm like, I'm trying to get my way through a shotless in my brain before I shoot. The last thing I want to be like, does this fucking match? Like, no, you need right. you like a basic outfit i know it works i don't have to think about it throw it on i can use my brain for better things but yeah i've got i've got like a set pile it's mostly just all of the <laughs> t-shirts i've gotten from like matthews hell yeah this one yeah this one from fucking frame io whatever like those are the gnarly ones keep it simple i think that's i think it's important yeah speaking of simple oh great what a great segue i just came up with <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep it simple yeah. yeah yeah um so obviously, like for for horror films, uh, lighting can be sparse, you know. And but if you keep it sparse, you know, you just don't get a good enough exposure. What are some uh, ways that because you've you've done a lot of horror, you know, you got three big ones on you right now, uh, with appendage being a horror comedy. Um, what are some of the ways that you're able to move quickly, be efficient, stay light, but still light in such a way that's dramatic and and keeps the tone? Like, do you have any kind of um, specific setups but like styles that you lean on um 
so far? Sure. Uh, I would say that, uh, well, yeah. So I make it a little more difficult on myself than maybe. So like, I don't, I, I typically don't like to use camera, you know, all these cameras have dual native sensitivity ISO settings. Right. You can do like 3,200 3, ISO and shoot with like uh, the back of your iPhone, like reflecting off a mirror in a room that's like 10 feet away. Like, I don't love that because I really, I think, I'm sure I will rely on it when I need to go on a super, super crazy fast moving set, but I, I haven't yet. I prefer to do the opposite. Um, something I talked about before about this movie was before I shot appendage, I was doing a bunch of stuff on 16 and 35, like that Jack White video and, you know, fastest films without pushing the film you're going to get is like for 500 ASA, you know, stock. And so I just got used to lighting for 500. And so, and you know, when we did appendage, like, I'm just going to, you know, a lot of the movies that we were referencing were all shot on film. And to me, part of the look of those is not just that they were on film, but you had to light those movies to a certain level to actually get them to look like that. And so it's not like just when people shoot on film, they're like, well, now my movie's going to look like it was shot on film. Modern film stocks are so clean that like, unless you push them or you actually expose them badly, you're not going to get as much grain as you think. And that was sort of one of the things that we also messed with on Appendage was there's very little film grain added to the movie later. But um, mm. yeah, we did Appendage all at like 500, except for two or three days interiors where I got screwed by the weather. And like, we yeah. turn all the lights off, all the Jennies off, and we just had to be like, blah, blah, I guess, put up a tube. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I don't rely on that for speed. I know a lot of people do. I think it totally works. There's some gorgeous stuff that like, obviously, like, you know, look at the creator. It was shot largely like 12,000 ISO on FX3, like right. rad. Um, and it totally, it totally works. I think the way that I just process lighting, I tend to like a significantly higher contrast ratio. And that's also gotten me into trouble a few times. But when you shoot at something like 500, unless you put a light somewhere, there's not going to be light on the face. You know what I mean? Like it's really helpful for getting exactly the contrast you want because you're limiting everything around it. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as far as how I actually do move fast in those situations, I don't do any real work anymore without making sure basically every light I've got is either blackout luminaire or on a DMX board. Obviously features like indie features like Avengers can't afford a DMX board, but even, even like, I can. Yeah, the iPad, even on the tie, like the tiniest, like uh, appendage was, what's funny is it, everyone sees this on Hulu, but it was actually produced at an indie level. Like it was acquired, you know, and, and picked up, but it wasn't like a Hulu original with like 12 or $15 million. This was, I, you know, I won't say it, but it was significantly lower than that. It was, it was produced as an indie. And, um, and so even at that level though, taking some hits on like maybe the number of lights I had available for lights that I knew I could control from my bed so that like I wasn't putzing around with level and having to send someone out to dial the sky panel knob to like get things to, you know, um, to be honest, actually only, we only use vortex eights, no sky panels. Um, but hey, no, the vortex eights are better than the sky panels. In my opinion, they are, I've got a four right here. <laughs> the, for me, it's like, I, I, you know, I like, I like sky panels when I got to do a big wash. Like if you're doing a big softbox overhead, it can be nice because they are slightly less. They have that less direction. I mean, you get to throw a diffusion panel in the vortex aid. But like if you're if you're not on a tight budget, the sky panels still work great for that. But I like the vortexes because yeah, if you don't want it to be a wash, there's no way to get a direct beam from a sky panel. And so we did a lot of stuff with the windows and appendage where it had to be. Sometimes it was supposed to play as a street light. Sometimes it was supposed to play as a moonlight. And so. 
we had basically outside every window at Hannah's, um, that was a real, real room. Like we had no set builds in this movie, which was tough for all of the number. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. So I tried to, I tried to set it up like it was a stage setup as best I could. One light through every window so I could control even, even during the day, if I wanted extra punch through the windows, you know, those vortexes really can kick if the sun's not hitting on the same side of the building. And so, uh, you know, we could slip into fusion panels if it was moonlight, pull them out if it was street lights, take them out for daylight. And so that just gave us a lot of control and I could, you know, touch of a button. So I hit them all to daylight. Great. Done. All right. Easy. Whereas like if you had them all on a sky panel set up with no DMX board, no, no DMX cable running in, that's that's your whole lighting team out there just dialing everything to daylight. And that's the difference of maybe 15 minutes to two. And so embrace, yeah. embrace the iPad, love the iPad, learn the iPad. Nope. <laughs> Know the lights that work well with it too, because there's some that don't. There's like, there's kind of, a, you know, a stair is magic. We lit half of appendage with the LightSock 40, basically. LightSock 40 and a stair tube in it. Just, you'll see that in almost all of our BTS. There's like a, there's just a tube sock right out of frame everywhere. And that thing is truly one of the most magical fast keys you could have when you're moving at our level and you can't, you know, some, I do a lot of bigger sets too, where I, you know, the bigger music videos, I'll build full bar soft boxes. Like you have a U, basically a U bar. I don't love overhead soft boxes. I think you, I don't love top down lighting. I, I don't, I just never have. So I prefer to build either U's or what I call like an A frame. And it's basically two diagonally tilted soft boxes instead of one flat overhead one, just because it means then I can sculpt that face ratio a little bit more instead of just, um, also helps wrap into the eyes. But, uh, you know, when you can't set up a full room and you can look anywhere and just turn on or off bars, it's really important that, to me at least, you have something that gives the the feeling of kind of a big bar light, but it's very movable. And that's why I like those tube socks a lot because it's it had that horizontal width, but it's very slim. And so you don't get like spill everywhere. That's the other thing is just controlling. I think I'm a, I'm a big tape duve on every wall I can when it's not on screen kind of person. Yeah. Which yep. you can't always do on a movie this side. Like you said, if it, sorry, circle back to your moving fast topic. That's not always possible. And so the best next thing is ISO down and use a soft, a, like a very controllable soft key. You know, like that thing has the built on skirt so I can trim it as much as I need. And even if there's a little bit of spill at 500, it really knocks it off the walls and knocks it off the, 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 the far side. And it's very controllable. So, yeah, I mean, Long, long that, answer. Sorry for that, but no, no, no. That uh, <laughs> I was literally about to say that was a, a, a almost everything I've ever said uh, in my own thoughts condensed and down to the fixtures and like style. I do like an overhead, but I use that more for. I guess everyone does use that more for ambient. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never, yeah, I've never thought of the the TP situation. That's actually pretty yeah. Sad. It's it's a little tough because you have to make sure you have the the weight bearing capacity to do it because tilting a 20 by 12 softbox is fucking heavy and it should be a chain motor thing you can do it with ropes if you have enough uh talented grips and it's it's totally possible but it is a little more it's that's not a easy you can do it yourself kind of assembly like i i only trust a really good grip team to rig that safely yeah the uh i was i also didn't want to interrupt you cuz you were on a good roll but uh i always <laughs> i always make a point to mark off when we've uh mentioned the astera tubes because every single person every dp has a set of astera tubes sometimes it's one kit sometimes it's more 
but they always show up everywhere. They are like the most sky panels were a big deal when they came out, but I think the Astera tube has absolutely changed everyone's workflow in some yeah. way or another. It's like, and then the light sock, light sock changed it again after that too. Like everyone was what like Asteras came out and people were like, oh, these look good in the shot. And they just started throwing Asteras into everything. Right. The, the music video, the cheap music video move. They're all and vertical. And then that's when they were the AX1s and they were only bright enough to be like in the shot, but not bright enough to really light the shot itself. And they came out with the Titans and suddenly like, oh, I can key with these now. Hell yeah. And then we just started like, I mean, you know, people started wrapping them in, uh, in what we called it snow. It's like a white kind of foam or, um, right putting it in a pool noodle and then light sock came out with the actual controllable diff and the skirt and that just i see those on tv sets i see those all over the place they're amazing yeah so for uh appendage were you so like your key so to speak was your your motivated light is coming through the windows with the vortexes and then you just bring the the tube with the sock on it for the actual yeah. key wrap it around yeah and i you know there's there's a few things that the tube can't even do or because it is a very soft light often what will happen is you lose some of the um the specular like the harshness or the shininess that you get from a bare tube and so what i started to do especially in the ending scenes or some of the scenes when she's lying down and i had the room to do it i would do a a slight sock that had more wrap to it like that was more of a key than anything and then i would put a bare tube like two feet below it and so and then turn that on to get skipped and so you got the soft key and then you got a hard edge to like kind of motivate it to feel like it was wrapping around better. And so that that became a little combo that I was using all over the place. Like if you, if you watch the end of the movie when she's lying down um, and facing herself, spoilers, um, that whole scene <laughs> is based. Yeah, it's basically lit that by that combo. There's like a light sock about five feet off the ground. And then there's another like bare tube, like two feet straight, straight below. And that's why she's got that like crazy hard glint and like shimmer across her cheeks. And it kind of gave it more of a horror-y edge because on its own, the light sock is so pretty and such a such a flattering light that it's not actually aggressive enough for horror movies sometimes. And so I learned ways to either skinny it with the the you know the skirt to make it a thinner source so it's a little harsher, or yeah, double edge it with another tube to add the specularity that it's losing. And that sort of that combo seemed to work pretty well. Yeah, I mean, uh... sorry, I had like three. Three branches. Yeah, yeah. Go. Um, th that was actually one thing I learned. I think I learned it from a photographer, actually. But one thing that I, that really helped me when it came to making more realistic light was putting a hard source inside of a soft source. I think mm -hmm. I think the photographer had a big umbrella and they had one flash into the umbrella and one flash aimed out outwards. Yeah, and then they would do that, and and it just looks great, and you can use it for film, and especially if like the umbrella is a little cooler than the. Then the key that kind of looks a lot more natural because you know shadows are always cooler and shit. But yeah, that's a great idea with the two tubes. Yeah, the other one I just remembered the as far as as far as speedy setups, you know everyone loves practicals, but if you if you have all individual hand squeezers, it can be again kind of tedious to do. So that's why I'm I always if I have any practicals instead, I make sure I have like a kit of Nix bulbs, the Astera Nix bulbs as yeah. well, just because color control from those is just the best. You know, it's like when you you sometimes. You know, you want a practical play even warmer than you can get it from dimming it, and you dim it so low it's no longer playing. But you're like, oh, now it's the right orange. You can just, right. you know, it's it's just so fast. Have you used the hydro panels? Yeah, my uh, my so my my LA gaffer uh, Nate Thompson, he's yeah, he's the one who introduced me to those as well. We we put some diff on those, and we'll stick them under cameras to get like really nice highlights from those all the time. Or when it's we use them on a feature, actually did a second feature with um with Hulu and uh, Worthen Brooks. 
this year and hopefully it comes out soon. But um, yeah, we did, we had a lot of stuff with TVs and that, and it was, it's, um, uh, it takes place in the nineties and TVs then were square. And so if you, you know, it was, it was four, three. And so we were realizing that in the eye lights, you could see that our, our, like the light match four was a rectangle and you could see that the tubes were tubes like, oh shit, that doesn't look like how a TV would look in their eyes at all. And so we started to either use st- like a four, like four hydras stacked into a square or yep. we do, um, we take a light match four, we put do over half. So it was a square because, you know, the thing we, we realized was the quality from those hydras when you stack them, it looked very much like that CRT kind of harshness when it was undiffed and just four of them in a row. So definitely, uh, yeah, use those a bunch now. They, uh, they listened to this podcast. I, it was the craziest thing. I was walking, wandering around like NAB and this guy jumped out at me and he was like, Hey, I like your stuff. And I was like, there's, well, he, well, no, this was a couple of years ago. And, and I was just like, no, there's no way. Cause I like, I write, I'm a, I'm a DP, but no one's seen what I've shot. And I was like, maybe he's read my articles, but how would he know what my face looks like? So I was like, no. And he goes, yeah, you did this, that, and the other. I did a, um, when the AX1 tubes first came out, I did a, a poor man's process with them, basically. And they, I guess he saw that um, with uh, Strange Old down the road. And uh, so I guess he's seen that, yada, yada, yada. The other day they sent me a, a four pack of the Hydra panels. And so I've been trying oh, to, I was like, has anyone else used these? Because I haven't. Since I've gotten them, I haven't gotten a gig where I can use them. But like using them as little mini keys, like places, has been nice. That little magnet on the back's pretty handy. Yeah, no, they're super punchy. They're they're useful for very specific things. But yeah, oh man, the part yeah doing that yeah Titans definitely changed poor man's processes. I I've done that a lot with like three old keto housings on the either side of cars. Like so, you have like nine banks, and then you just put four tubes in each, and you can do perfect like light passes and chases. It's great. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on was the, uh, kind of getting deeper into the idea of just shooting everything at 500, which yeah. is also something I strongly believe in. Cause when people talk about how film looks better than digital, I often think that the color wise, maybe, you know, cause, cause obviously the colorist is going, can make any camera look like anything, but like, um, I can see an argument for that, but in my opinion, it all comes down to contrast. And back then you had to hit everything with a pretty hard light. Like getting soft light was a novelty when the Kinos first came out. And now everything is, you know, bare tubes and, and, and eight bank chimera light, um, um, sky panels and stuff. And so I think to your point of, of shooting a lower ISO, plus you get cleaner shadows, shooting a lower ISO and using a, a more, let's say traditional lighting style does make your stuff look more, um, premium. I suppose, or mm-hmm. filmic, quote unquote. Yeah, I hate, I, I, I did enough stuff. Again, like music videos, you sometimes, you have to just, ah, I'm going to shoot 1600, 2000, sure, why not? And like, when you get into the grade, the amount that music videos get pushed in grades farther than features is all, it's pretty drastic. And like, if you don't have clean enough shadows, you'll start to get all that crazy colored noise when they try to introduce a heavier LUT. And I just don't like the look of pushed, LUTed, you know, in-camera color noise. Um, right. So that was the beginning of my like, I'm just going to start ISOing down. I'm just going to bring it all down. So even if they want to throw a heavy grade on, it's still clean. And then we can control how much grain goes on there. I was, but yeah, everybody has a different process. I'm just, that's how my well, brain works. You had mentioned it earlier, but even like with the creator, I remember seeing the trailer before Oppenheimer. I was in the IMAX, like the 70 millimeter IMAX projector. And those shadows, I'm, this is the trailer. I haven't seen the movie yet. 
but the the chroma noise was insane and i was like oh okay so when you see it on a big enough screen you can see it i'm sure on smaller screen tv whatever not a big deal but like it was aggressive and so when all these articles came out i would love to interview Oren about it uh, he's rad you, you definitely should he's he's very he's a cool guy and yeah yeah him and I, 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 I had followed him on uh instagram for year and probably like twitter or whatever for years you know yeah. I've, I've loved that guy's work um but it was, you know, when everyone was, when all the Sony fanboys, I don't know if you're uh, an online person, but boy, Sony's got a fan base. Yeah. They try not to. <laughs> I try not to. Yes. I try to stay off that as much as I can. Yeah. The, uh, it's brutal. But uh, they're all like, look at it. We can do it. I'm like, I'm so glad you're motivated. Keep that motivation. But also ILM <laughs> touched a lot of this. Yeah. I, what I think works for that is they're, you know, because they were embracing the the seventy five mil Kawa thing, and like it was, it yeah. had that aggressive vintage kind of vibe to some of the sci fi. Like there was a, you know, you look at some old films. There was a lot of chroma noise, honestly, in earlier film stocks. That it, it's definitely different. It's a different kind of noise. Um, to me, with with what uh Dave Cold of the, the Colorist, he worked on that in Dune and Batman. He's like one of the you know the best out there. I feel like. The 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 contrast curve and the, the the sort of film push they did on it. You know, I was worried. I I used to own an FX3. I'm very aware of what the noise pattern looks like, and like I thought I was going to bug me, but the way that they they kind of tweaked the image, it just felt like kind of the error. I think they were to me like the error they were shooting for enough that like, you know, yeah. If you analyze it, like I was able to see because I'm a fucking dork and I own the camera. Like there's one scene where like that's FX3 noise, but like if you don't know. And you're just yeah. a 70s sci-fi fan or an 80s sci-fi fan, you might just be like, this just looks like exactly what my favorite movies used to look like. And that's I think, you know, the power of power of embracing the yeah, some some ILM magic of really, you know, knowing your color science and getting it to kind of line up and post it. You can do a lot of things now. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's that's what's been so hard. First of all, like I said, I haven't seen the movie, so I am just looking yeah. forward to seeing because I am squarely in that camp of people who loves that type of film. Yeah, and you could barely string together a plot, and I'm fucking there for it, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, I was trying to think of a few movies that that counts, but I don't need to. Anyway, uh, the nope, completely lost that thought. FX three noise. Oh, it's but also it's just like. It's it makes it really hard to review cameras because part of my job writing for Pro Video Co Coalition is reviewing gear, whatever lights, cameras, stuff like that. And, and at this point, it's getting really difficult to receive a camera and not just sound like you're bitching because every camera sure. is amazing. So you end yeah. up trying to find the little things that aren't amazing, and then the whole article like, is just complaining. <laughs> yeah, no, I I understand. <laughs> but same thing, like only probably film nerds are going to like, like technical film nerds are going to look at any movie and be like, Ooh, chroma noise. No, people don't know the word chroma noise. That's not, no, no, no. And so it's, yeah, it's really, you can get away with it just fine. Yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm actually in the, I have to return it technically. I'm hoping they will let me keep it for longer, but, uh, Fujifilm sent me the, uh, GFX 100, the second they're calling it. Ooh, yeah. Dude. So in terms of mirrorless cameras, yeah, this might be the best one. Whoa, cool. Like, like period. Um, autofocus is fast enough that it works. I just shot, like I said, I was shooting the race cars at Laguna Seca. Kept up yeah. fine. Eight frame burst, no problems. Got a buffer like crazy. So you can just ratchet off, you know, like 40 raw images before it starts to freak out on you. 
um, or yeah. infinite JPEGs. But yeah, eight stops of stabilization, 8K ProRes files can do raw oh. if you go to like an Atomos or whatever. And it's a hundred megapixel medium format still camera. So it's just every, it's got everything yeah. going for it. <laughs> and then the Fujifilm color science, which is nice. I got my X-T5 somewhere on the shelf back there. Yeah, I'm, I'm a oh yeah, I got I yeah. got that. I got the, uh, I actually just bought a while ago. I bought the GFX 50R. Oh yeah. Which, um, really like, I have an X100, got a whole of them. X-T3. Um, I did read that you were kind of a, uh, similar to me, a uh, bit of a nerd growing up where you were making your own gaming PCs and whatnot, which I also did. Uh, what was your game of choice? Oh, uh, good question. You know, I did a lot of, a lot of MMO things. I loved RPGs just story, story wise. Um, the, I think my, one of my earliest memories gaming was, was actually not on PC. It was, um, the Nintendo 64, it was Gauntlet Legends. It was oh, uh, sure. yeah, the the arcade, yeah, the arcade adaptation. They turned into the N64 game. And like uh I played the shit out of that game. I I loved it. Um I, I fantasy's always been a big thing for me. And so um sure. Loved that. But uh yeah, no, I mean building the PCs, I think once I started to get into like, you know, I guess Elder Elder Scrolls with Morrowind. That was Xbox, I guess. Was there a PC version of Morrowind? I don't remember. That was a while there was, but Xbox was first, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Jammed on that a lot too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The uh I same thing, like I was playing uh, you know, as they came out, you Final Fantasy seven through ten, I think was my kind of era. Six not really, but uh and then all the Nintendo sixty four games. There's only like fifteen, so yeah. But um when I was get started getting into there was like a, I grew up in a really small town and the, and this, uh, the library had this little like, who wants to learn how to make films course. And looking back on it, they just grabbed like two guys from San Francisco who had just graduated college or maybe were in college to teach it. But I realized we were on premiere like seven or something. And I realized that I couldn't, uh, it might, no computer I had could run it. You know, we were running the e-machines, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, at the same time, I was really getting into Counter-Strike. And so oh, yeah. I was convincing my parents that I needed the computer for Premiere. And I was like, it's, it's just the same stuff. Like, if I'm playing Counter-Strike, it's basically the same thing. <laughs> so I was able to, yeah. like, start building a Counter-Strike rig. And we we played semi-professionally. Hell yeah. Nice. Now, looking back on it, I should have stuck with that. Everyone making millions of dollars. Just right? hanging out. It was, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad that was the route because there's a, I, I meet a lot of people now and a lot of first day scenes who tell me there's a lot of, you know, other, other DVs who have their first day scenes who like learning just the basics of the tech side of it, aside from just like what the gear is like, you know, there's a, a larger people that took, that was their biggest learning curve with just how the internal camera technology even worked. Not just like, how do you stick a Teradek on? How do you pull focus? Like it's, you know, what is, what is the computing inside the camera actually doing what does it mean and and i think i'm i'm pretty grateful to have the, the nerd backgrounds who have uh, been willing to delve into that kind of stuff yeah that's certainly to your point about not going online that's in the past like year i've really started to decline on my interest in like even this is going to sound shitty to say but like even trying to help people because there'll be conversations there'll be conversations on uh 
Reddit or whatever, where someone will ask a question and you're like, oh yeah, actually same, you know, if you lower your ISO, you actually get less shadow noise. And then here comes nerd PhD to give you a dissertation on why you're wrong. And you're like, I don't, I don't, whatever. <laughs> like I know I, when I do it and I see the shadows, I see they're cleaner. If you have a reason that you think it's the wrong, like, sure you do. You. Yeah. I think that's why like people, there's so many, so you get asked a lot of questions where it's hard it's hard to answer for everyone's experience sometimes. It's like, you, you know, to everyone's eye, not even the word clean necessarily even means the same thing sometimes. Right. It's, it's, it's very tough to subjectively describe an image. I mean, there's, there's some things that are inarguable about, about how an image looks, but to some people, right. you know, clean to them is color separation and, and, and clarity rather than graininess or like that, you know, it is, there's so many different ways to talk about the way these things mean that, especially when you're dealing with a lot of people online, the, the language can be a little difficult and it's just not worth, it's not worth arguing. <laughs> well, the big one now that I've been, it feels like I've been beating my head against a wall is, uh, and I got to have, um, Jay Holbin back on to just do a, we, we had a lens month last season and everyone really liked it. And so, but Jay just came out with a new book of all of his, um, shot craft articles from American cinematographer. So we're going to use that as a launch pad to get him back on. But I want to have a segment nice. where I, we just debunk the top five internet myths that keep popping up. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. So one of them, tell me if you can think of any after I named the first couple. Uh, sure. uh, what speed boosters do. I'm I'm sick of hearing people say, oh, I got a speed booster. So my camera is now full frame. I'm like, please stop. Stop doing that. No, uh, no more words. Yeah. None <laughs> from you. Um, uh, just the difference between full frame and super 35, like legitimately, I think as much as I love Steve Yedlin, I think that level of, uh, uh, specificity should have been locked behind a gate. Like you need, there needs to be like, you need to prove that you know what you're reading before you get to read those documents. You know what I'm talking about? Is like yeah, oh, they're yeah. they are dense, and I I really appreciate them, but they're very dense, and you can get lost in them. Like <laughs> you aren't like really really doing this like every day and try. You know, it's a lot. Yeah, and again, I love when people get confidence, but when they get confidence and then want to shout other people down or whatever, and use something yeah. that they don't fully understand to justify their ideas, it's just like, ugh. um, or people, uh, oh. Jumping off the back of that one that I've seen a lot, uh, people will be like, oh, be, look at Steve Enlin. You can make any camera look like anything. So what I do is I just use a color space transform and resolve to turn my Sony into an Alexa. I'm like, oh, God. Like, I'm glad I stayed out of this. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I like it. At, at base level, like, I guess technically you are doing what they said you're doing but it's like it's not you know there's so many factors behind that that like the sensor provides that you can't just fake with a color space transform right but you know well my argument was always if that was true we would all be doing that if yeah. it was that easy to just do do like that's not a secret you found yeah like, well yeah it's like well the thing is you know what what they're not you know what that argument doesn't work for me is like, yes, you could do it. And yes, you have now put your image into log C, Ari's color space. But what you don't have is the dynamic range of the Alexa baked into your image. And you don't have 
how in like how in in you know sort of um interprets motion you don't have how you know they, there's so many different like even the like the the way that our manufactures pixels versus someone else like the subdivisions on red versus like the bigger photo sites like like there are so many little factors in this like you can't just smack into the same color space like yeah i can put my iphone into re log c it doesn't mean it looks like an re it just means it's in the same color space like mm. I, there's so many there's there's depth there's layers it's an onion it's yeah. shrek um it's, it's shrek yeah it's always it's always shrek <laughs> that uh, that you you brought back out something I, I forgot to ask uh, about the iphones and your experience shooting an iphone because yeah um that's a piece and also tied into online a lot of times new people start they go online they ask you know what should i do and me and a bunch of other people, like, literally just grab some friends, write something, and sh just shoot it on your phone. Don't invest any money in this. And then there's always this pushback of, like, no, that you don't get it, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I'm like, well, if we had a, a – mini DV was a big-ass problem. <laughs> it was never easy. Like, iPhone is easy, you know, and cheap because yeah. uh, you probably have one. Or But even I, – I've never owned an iPhone. I, I shoot Android. Yeah. And even the Android phones are really, really good. I have a Pixel, mm -hmm. whatever. Um but what was your experience shooting that film on that system and what kind of workarounds did you need to use and things you needed to consider to make sure it came out looking its best? So this was when we did it, there was the iPhone eight. So there was no cinematic mode. There was no mm -hmm. built in frame lock. There was no built in wipeout. So we were using filmic pro to control it all. Um, it was like a year after unsane had come out when we shot the movie. And so we knew like, Hey, they, they paid that work. We could probably, yeah. they could make that work. It was you know, a large part. It was also, uh, we, because it was all improv initially, I was like being a fucking uh, DP. I was like, well, we can use like a 5D. We can use something. I don't want to do an iPhone yet. I, I was like really not sold on the iPhone and Patrick pitched it to me. Like, uh, let me right. find another option. And then we realized it was going to have to be almost all two camera the whole time. And he was going to have to operate one. He's a very good writer. He's a good director. Has not really done cinematography work. And so asking him to suddenly focus his own 5D and like learn all the setting and all that in three weeks, it wasn't going to happen. And, um, I wouldn't ask anyone to go through that and then be stressed and like, whatever. And so, you know, I watched Unsane. Because <laughs> I talked to like, I guess we can do it. We're going to do an iPhone. Let's just go over the iPhone route. Um, and so we, we did get a moment. I just like, I think the moment telephoto lenses had just come out. Yeah, and so I love that lens. It looks cool. We shot a lot of the moment telephoto lens. The chromatic aberration on the edges is fucking great. Yep, yep. Yeah. Very add some nice grit to the image. And like we were, we used a lot of those. We had a uh, little handheld rigs. We had zoom recorders strapped to the handheld rigs. <laughs> like, you know, just to try and get some audio. I mean, like half that movie's ADR, but it is what it is. Um, I would hey, say man, all of Star Wars episode one is ADR. Look, yeah. And say it's worked for some people. So we, <laughs> we did, we did, we did what we had to. Uh, I mean, the re another reason we want the iPhones was we were stealing all of it. Like we had no permits. Right. We we were shooting in very public places and like restaurants and and on the road and and uh, to everyone else I think it looked like we were shooting like a travel log or a documentary or something and you know it let us get by and, and that was because we didn't build out the now there's like iPhone rigs you know like now there's stuff where you can right. like like and the same with the FX three you can build that thing out to be like this fucking big it's crazy um, but we opted for nothing like that we had little travel tripods we had like two handle handheld rigs and we just tried to be as low profile as possible. Uh, the main thing that helped us out to make that not look like absolute ass image wise was just filmic pro and then exposing for the highlights no matter the situation, just like right. making yep. the, 
Make sure the highlights are in because the the ugliest thing the iPhone does is blow out its highlights still and like it can't handle it can't handle the upper range very well. So we would just always expose to that and we were like, it's an iPhone movie. It's a horror movie. If it's grainy, when we race it up later, the horror movie and it's gonna be grainy. And we we're actually pretty surprised at how well I mean the colorist was able to push the image. Like he dropped on a full I think this was again before you know, Filmbox and Dehancer were out and like all these new film emulation software. So yeah, I think he was, I think he had like an iPhone film convert plugin and like surprisingly by being able to push the image around a fair amount. And there's some shots in that where like, because the sky was kept in, like when you soften the contrast and redo the actual curve on it later, we have very few blown out skies in that film, which is kind of surprising. Um, but again, it was constantly paying attention to the, the actual like, Film the pro just had like always checking the exposure, always locking it. Like it would reset your white balance in between takes. It was a very early, early version of it. So being very aware of settings the whole time helped us out mm-hmm. a lot. But well, yeah. now uh, Black Magic's got their app, which apparently it, it's only for iPhone, but apparently it's way better than Filmic. Really? Like cool. far more usable. Yeah. 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 I don't think I'm ever going to do an iPhone movie again, <laughs> but I'm glad that I'm glad the software is better. A uh, big thing we did with Threshold was done was, uh, we did a doc on how we shot the movie because we knew like it was it was kind of the, the classic joke. It's everyone's like, well, everyone has a camera in their pocket. Now it's like, go right. yourself. Every time you hear that, you want to punch whoever says it. But to a certain extent, we did want to be able to say like, look, if you're if you are desperate to make something like genuinely, you are waiting on money for a bigger project. You don't know how to break in. You don't know what you're doing. You technically can do it, and it'll be hard, and it won't be exactly how you want to make a movie, but it is doable, and it doesn't have to look like ass. Like, then this is how. And so we basically did an hour and a half making of Threshold. Now I'm making of Doc. It's on like the Blu ray and Arrow and all that. And it dives super deep into how we actually got away with it. Now I'm going to have to get that Arrow Blu ray. Because, like I said, I got all these Criterion films and then I started collecting arrows. And I'm like, now I need a separate Arrow shelf. So I'll just <laughs> get that. Yeah. Um, but also, that, like, uh, I remember that was the one that. Uh, a lot of people got mad at was David Fincher famously said that about iPads. He was like, write it on the iPad, email it to your friends from the iPad, shoot it on the iPad. You can edit it on the iPad. I don't know what you're mad about. And it did occur to me that when we, you, when you and I were in our respective film schools, they kept saying like, if you have a story to tell, then you'll succeed. And I think yeah. now because stuff is so accessible, um, it has made people who are curious about film that don't really have a, a fully thought out idea or whatever want to and think they can come out with something amazing like off rip. And I yeah. think that that urgency of need, like when I, it's the, when I, anytime anyone asks, what sh- camera should I get? I'm always like, what's your script? Like, well, I don't have yeah. one. I want to get into it. And I'm like, nope, nope. Story comes first every time. Otherwise, you're going to be mad at yourself if you just have a camera and no story. Well, that was the craziest part for us is we thought like, oh, we're using, you know, we're using these iPhones. They can do crazy shots of them. We can put them on the steering wheel. They can turn and it'll spin the camera. And we realized day one, like 20 minutes into shooting, we weren't going to do any of that shit. Like, yeah. the, the, the reason the movie was working even that early on was because the story was good. The actors were giving it everything. We're like, okay, this is just, we're just going to shoot this traditionally. We're using iPhones and it's just is what it is. We have one or two fun shots that you could, like we stick it on a door and you open a door and the door swings open. Sure. But again, that's something that people could do with, actual cameras too you know you put a door a car mount on you can swing a door open and do that it's just easier to duct tape an iphone to a window but like 
we realized the gimmick and the and the yeah that part of it didn't make any sense and it, it just came down to got to tell the story the right way yeah totally there was uh, something else i had written down not to pause everything so i can oh well now there's two things <laughs> um yeah i did want to speaking of so one thing, it, uh, this is the, another reason why I ask people if they've listened to it before they've been on is, uh, I'm very bad at having like, I really feel like I've stuck the landing. If all the questions had something to do with the thing before it, it sure. very rarely happens. Um, but going back to the music videos thing, I was wondering what, uh, do you remember any, um, moments that got you onto the next level of music video, you know, starting obviously super low budget, like what people were involved, what projects. Um, and, and why do you, to this day, feel like you're still the person to call for all these really big pop artists? You know, what? or other artists, not all pop, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really strange. It's the music video career was always a fun thing that happened surprisingly alongside the narrative one, because to be honest, the two styles of shooting are very different and I've actually lost, I, I, you know, more than how I got to the next level, I think I probably can tell you how you won't, um, is a lot of the stuff you shoot narratively, typically, or you should be, eh, there's a lot of thought behind each frame. And the lighting fits the mood of the frame, and it fits what the character's feeling, and you're looking for meaning in everything you're shooting. You're not just trying to pop off, like when everyone says just shoot it, that's my, like, that gives me a heart attack. I When I hear just shoot it, I want to walk like off the set because that means that you've lost the thread of why we're all here. And right. sadly you hear that a lot on music videos. Like it's just a shot to shoot it. It's like just, a, it's just, just, you just need a couple shots in the, the room to shoot it. And, um, surprising. I love that one. Yeah. Especially early on when I was more difficult, um, <laughs> I was trying to put too much into each frame. Like I was, I, 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 I immediately came out of college did that feature and did another one like the year after and was just like in narrative land at least one feature a year basically and and so i had to kind of learn how to turn that part of my brain off a little bit where it was like you know sometimes something can just look cool and that's also fine and like that's allowed and the lighting doesn't need to come from somewhere and like you can just it can just be fun and it can just be like oh well that it looks good because it needs to look good and uh I would say early on, I, my, my inclinations were also, I liked making sad things when I was younger. I was very into bleak art. Yeah, I guess. we all do. And, and I still do. I still think that like, there is a lot, like the, one of the craziest feelings on set is when you got an actor who walks in the room and you can tell they're in it and they're so committed and the room gets quiet and no one says a word and the sticks are quiet and they call action very quietly. And it is like, don't fuck up because this is a once in a lifetime thing to capture right now. They are so deep in it. You just got to do it. And right. um, that's still the best feeling to me, I think. And that's why maybe my, uh, I can track my narrative career moving in a, in a certain path as just the stuff I've chosen, I've chosen to shoot and who I've chosen to shoot with has um, lined up in kind of a nice way. Music videos, wild west. There is no, yeah. there's no way to know. Like, I would say that my biggest breaks in music videos have not come after my biggest videos. But like mm. I, it's it's so bizarre, and like you'll never know what's going to be the one that takes off. Um, a couple of years ago, 
there was a and a little a little song that was called uh, "If the World Was Ending." It's the J.P. Sachs Julia Michaels song. Was the big song at the time. We did a music video for it. Very low budget music video. Very simple. It was in two houses and the street connecting the houses up the block. We had no idea. It's like one of my. It's like three hundred fucking four four hundred million views on YouTube now. Like one of the right. like my most viewed things. It's a huge song. And like a, a year later, saw you know a clip of my own cinematography like in the voice as they were playing it for like someone who was going to sing it on the show. It was fucking crazy. But we had no idea. Like that right. thing is you'll. Sometimes you can tell, like, if it's for a big artist, like, oh, of course, a bajillion people are going to see this. Like, I did a Doja Cat video. I'm like, I got to nail this because there's so many people's eyes going to be on this already. What you don't know is when that's going to happen on accident or when that's going to happen because something goes viral. And that's why I hate the just shoot it attitude because your just shoot it and your phoned in video might be the one that people see the most out of everything you've ever done. You're going to really be mad if you, as a, I think also as a director or a DP, phone some shit in. And then suddenly you're like, this is what you're known for is you're known for phoning some shit in. And I hate that. And so um, I try and approach everything. Now, I won't take on something if I don't want to put like music videos. I got to I got to be want I got to want to bring everything I bring to a narrative to the music. video. even if on set, I'm chill about the like, you don't need to tell me what she's feeling in this. <laughs> like, right, right, right. Um, the the artistic intent behind everything. I mean, there's you got to at least be willing to bring bring some of you to it. And if you're doing stuff where you don't give a crap, like, I hope you're getting paid well for it. <laughs> it's another one. Yeah. You know, it it hurts. It really does wear down on you after three or four years of shooting stuff that you don't feel and don't care about. Like, it sucks. And so, you know, I try and find, like, I did this, you know, I did a, a music video for Youngblood uh, with Chris, uh, Chris Breslauer, who I work with a fair amount. And we've done a lot of, a lot of, a lot of my big favorite videos we've done together. And... Um, that one was just such a cool experience because you know he knows me, he knows me, he knows how I like to shoot. Now I think he just like you'd rock just shooting a a punk show. No, that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna make a punk show. We're gonna get a warehouse. It's a dead empty warehouse. When you watch the video, it looks like it was it's meant for that kind of thing. But no lights in there. There was nothing in there. There's no stage. It was it was like straight up. And you know we just got to build an underground punk scene for that one. And like that was. You know, that's the kind of music video I can get behind where it's like build a world, make it like really distinct and like let's let's just shoot around in that world. Um, I think that the that that might be the best answer for you is like just make sure you you do you even if it's a video you don't understand or you don't know why you're shooting it, put some of you into it because if you don't you're not gonna you're not gonna wanna talk about it after. <laughs> well, and I've certainly done that before where like the pace sucks. Maybe the people aren't your favorite, whatever. And you're kind of like, uh, especially like the motivations thing. You're like, no one's caring about the motivations. Uh, and that, well, that just reminded me of something else, but, and then it hits and then you have this feeling of wanting to take it away from people's faces and go, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I just need to polish that up. And it's like, no, it's too late. Like I freelance color a lot. And even then I have to like, sometimes take a couple like a couple days away just to come back because I'm like sick of it and I'm like it looks good enough like why are you complaining and then just go all right no they want it to look different I'm gonna make sure it looks different and good not just different yeah. for different sake because otherwise you know it ends up in front of someone who's like oh who's the colors who's the DP and you're like oh that's not my best you know <laughs> yeah and you can't you can't always help that and that's kind of why I also I, I dig you know 
I, I was I was doing these music videos for a long time, but moving into commercials more so recently in narrative, it there's some there is a, a soulless quality occasionally to commercial work, or there can be. But what is there is intent. No matter what, even the even the worst commercial you'd be on, you're like, man, why am I filming a napkin commercial? Like, what is the but? Right. At, at least then it's all boarded. And like everyone at least put thought into why you're doing it. And even if you don't like the thought, it's nice to know there is thought. Yeah. And that's one of the things I, I do really appreciate working with someone like Chris. Like he, 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 he sends me videos and it's frame by frame. He's already animatic the whole music video before like to the time code and the video that comes out is exactly that. Like I know that he's not going to look at something, just to film it. It's fine. Like he'll, he's, he's someone who also cares kind of the same about, um, and it's why Anna and I get along really well. We've know our like Anna and I've shot so many things together and I've known her since so early on and she's amazing so early on in college. We definitely have a bit of a, a hive mind thing that happens where we're on set. Like she's very prepped. You know, I, I don't get me wrong, there are shot lists, there are storyboards, we have references that we shoot on like Kadraj or Artemis to match the storyboards and it's all there. But when it comes down to it, if there's a moment where it's like she doesn't feel right. What are we missing? We're missing this close up. She's like, I need this kind of close up, and I won't even have to ask. I'll be like, "You want this lens, right? You want me to be on this side of them? You want exactly this?" She's like, "Yeah, this is great." It is like we just know. I know her taste. She knows my taste, and we just, you know, there's never a phone in situation with her because she she cares a lot, and luckily we don't have to over communicate too much to get there. Yeah. Was there anything? Uh, you know, every project you end up learning something, especially you know, like we've been saying. But is there anything? on uh appendage that you came off the other side going like oh that's something i gotta think about for the future maybe a, a trick or something that you picked up off it yeah i actually wrote a a list i'm not going to go through the whole <laughs> list but i, I as as she as we get yeah, as we went i had a an ongoing list of questions to ask on my next feature and me and my first ac well add to this add to this note daily and it was just things that we missed on the prep board things that like do i, do I have it close because there's some. I was going to say, you got to email me this list because I'm just interested yeah. for my own work. <laughs> Let me see. I don't have to publish it. Questions for questions for features. There we go. Yeah. I mean, stuff where even down to the nitty gritty, where like we were getting nickel and dime by some of these rental houses and, and, and the budget on that, we're like getting so specific as to ask, do you have budget for carts beyond like, uh, like rental? Do you have money? for extra carts if we need it. Cause we were shooting in places where we couldn't, there were no elevators and there was no easy access walkways. And if they asked us to hunt, like huff every box up individually, we would have died. Um, you know, qu uh, things like, uh, making sure you have paid color supervision on a smaller movie. That's not often there. Um, got to check for that. I think even if it's a week, even if you have to do one week unpaid and one week paid, still good. Making sure that you have it in there, that you are consulted on the colorist. Because there's a lot of people, a lot of producers, a lot of people who will just be like, oh, I got this guy. And it's like their cousin. Right. <laughs> and you're like, I, have you graded anything ever? And you, you know, I, on some people, popular opinion, some people, unpopular opinion. I think the colorist is up to, like, it's like 50% of the cinematography process. Nope. That's, not, that is a very popular opinion on this podcast. Yeah. There is, I think, you can't obviously have a colorist fix just bad work, objectively bad work, but right. you can have a colorist ruin good work very easily. Yeah. And, and you can have a colorist misinterpret, I think worse than that, misinterpret what the movie is. That is like, 
that is the biggest problem I think you see where, especially with all these online color courses now and people just learning how to make things look so punchy and so polished and so overcolored and so overproduced, you have an army of, of independent colorists who maybe before they've done features are going to push a narrative too far. And, mm-hmm. and even, even bigger color houses too. You've got people who only done music videos and only done commercials where the tonality that you choose on something like a music video, you wouldn't really think about it, but it's radically different than what you might choose on a feature. And sometimes you can distract from the narrative by pushing, like by making it all about the image and you can really, or turn it into the wrong kind of movie by grading it to your own personal taste rather than paying attention to what the film is. And no, no amount of work as a DP can save you from that sometimes where yeah, unfortunately, especially if you're not, you are not in the, the, the supervised sessions and you're, um, you know, you're, you get maybe three days with them or five days with them on a, on a movie. If you only have a five day color, basically that's, that's the typical number on like a pretty, you know, pretty low features. You'll get five to seven days. Five days is enough time for them to put a look on the whole movie and you to give notes on that and say like totally wrong direction or right direction. They'll do one round of notes and whatever that next round of notes is, that's what you're doing as basically your final pass. Like you can tweak it, you can power window, you can do a little bit, but like you have enough time to go through one round where you just say right. it's wrong or right. And, and, and if you haven't, you know, if you don't have the right person on board and they don't get it right twice, that's the, that's the luckier movie. So you need someone very intuitive and, and that you trust and who knows you and knows what you, how you expose to like, hopefully take it home the right way. And that's why I really appreciate Sam Gilling on this one. We actually hadn't worked together before, but I'd seen his work and on and I had done a very intense color selection kind of process because we had to submit, um, certain people to the, you know, to, to the studio to, to approve. And so, um, we had a list of great colorists, someone who'd colored like the original short, who I'd worked with a ton and I loved him as well. And it was just, it came down to who they approved first, you know, who, you know, uh, our top selection. It could have been, it was a list of 20 that we trimmed down to three and we presented those three to them. And, you know, you can always say who you're, favoring or whatever but we we were very lucky that they listened to us and they took into consideration from those three who we all thought would work and sam is um you know from the beginning he took the image in like he's known for doing really excellent film emulation like he's he's really good at it and he even said i'm not going to push this like i normally do on like a music video commercial i feel like it's not right it'll be distracting the story is a little more I can't believe I'm going to say this. The story's a little more realistic, like in some ways, like there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ridiculous shit in appendage. It is a very silly movie. Um, and it's a very heavy movie and it is a very funny movie. And the, that, those three tones, very hard to navigate. And so getting a look that is not so pushed, it forces you into any of those realms was really important. And it was also, a, it was his choice to be like, Hey, normally I know you'd want some grain. I'm not going to put any grain on this. I think we're going to do like maybe 10, 15% to help with like internet compression. And besides that, you won't even notice. And it's a very clean looking movie. And that's because it just didn't fit the movie. The movie, the, the short film was a little campier, a little more retro feeling, a little sillier. And so we went for like a very pushed look, a lot of grain, a lot of retro shit. Feature, um, it had... A very distinct horror and comedy approach. If you went too horror and too saturated, uh, like too bleak, the funny wouldn't be funny. And if you went too like bright and punchy and clean and saturated, then the scary wouldn't be scary. 
And he was right. very on on it, tracking where the lead character was feeling the whole time in a way that I think um, a less, a maybe a less tasteful colors might not have interpreted the right way and the movie wouldn't feel the way it does. I, you even talking about that makes me imagine sort of a, um, like a vector scope. And you yeah, know, you got all the colors on the edges and I can imagine those being genres. And if yeah. you, you know, push the vector scope in too many directions, now it's oversaturated. Uh, yeah. so, you know, if you're trying to hit multiple genres, the best way is to just rein it in, make it a little more neutral. Yeah. It was, the thing was we lit with such a distinct color palette on set. We get like, we had a really clear, yeah. a really, really clear color story for Hannah that he didn't need to introduce the colors in post. Like the color was there. I'm not shy when I'm going to use a color. Like I'm happy to go super gritty and super bleak and super cold or whatever. But if I'm going to use a color, like I hate half-assed colors. And so I hate when it's like, it's almost purple. It's almost pink. It's like, it's like, just you're gonna use it. Like go for it. <laughs> and so, and make it mean something, make it happen. Like give it a reason why you're going for it. Um, even if it's just part of the world, like, I'm going to like the scene of the purple neon light because in my head up in that skylight, there's a purple neon sign. And like in, in a sci-fi movie that feels totally correct. You know, like there doesn't need to have an emotional reason all the time, but like this one did um, just because of the complexity of the town. There was a reason we use all these colors. Um, and so Sam, when he got the footage and posts, like it's already there. Like you guys shot it the way it's supposed to be. Um, I'm just going like, to, he, I think what he did was give it sort of, just help make it feel earnest, I guess. Like the movie just feels very much like it's not trying to push too much on you in terms of the like the look. It sort of just is what it needs to be seen by scene. A very, I would say, for the most part, not show offy kind of thing. Like there weren't a lot of like crazy light chases and there weren't pulses and there wasn't like shit going on everywhere that I was like, look at all the stuff I can do, which is often what music videos are. It's like, look at all the stuff I can do. Um, and this had to be the opposite of that. This had to be like, look at all the stuff the actor can do. Like, look at all of this, look at all this stuff that the script is doing. And me, I'm just going to make it look like it's supposed to in a way that you don't think about, you don't think about how the movie looks. Hopefully that's the game. That, that, uh, you just made me remember, uh, again, another thing I was going to ask earlier, we were talking about sticking to one ISO and shooting everything like that. Do you, are you the kind of person who will white balance to whatever, or do you just 56, 32 it and call it a day? No, I have, I have three that I like. I I will do. Uh, I will also throw forty three hundred in there. Um, actually, for why? And no, four. And I'll use thirty seven hundred. I like. I don't just dial it like randomly, like thirty seven four two for no reason. Like it is. Uh, I choose the white balance strictly on like what I need. It, okay, usually stuff I'm working on. I don't like, especially narratively, don't always have the time to have every light be LED. Don't always have the time to control daylight to be exactly the daylight time I need. I can't gel the windows. I can't do whatever. And so, you know, if I need to do like a scene where I, I can't adjust all of my, um, my tungsten warmer and it's like a, a day for night scene or whatever, I'll like, I'll just go to 5600 and shoot the bulbs at like 32 and it, Make it as normal as I need it to. It's easy. Like I'll do that when I when I don't have when I, for speed. Um, but I don't like to just go so far off of like sort of established white balances where like you lose track of like. In the same way, I like for contrast ratios. I think that's how I like for white. Like I use white balances. Yep. Like I know in my head what five hundred would get me for contrast ratio. I know in my head what like forty three hundred would give me with daylight versus tungsten. I know like if I'm going to do 
moon, like moonlight at night, you know, say you don't have the money for a condo or you can put a couple S3, like 360s in there and like actually color tone the moonlight. I know what 4300 from an HMI is going to give me. I know what 4300 with HMI with blue on it will give me. Like I can kind of, I can design it that way. Um, it's sort of, a, it's my, yeah, the cheat code for when you can't gel everything or put LEDs on everything. The the cheat code that I've, so I'm the same way. It's like, you know, 32, 43, 56, whatever, 65. Yeah. But um, the, the one thing that I've really come to enjoy is having a color meter. Mm. Cause like it's because I have one of those new ones too, where you can actually test the like uh, spectral output of certain lights, which is also why I don't like sky panels because they're actually the mm. quality kind of sucks. Um, the the Kino Flow is actually number one. Kino Flow has the best spectral output of any the LEDs, not the bulbs. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but like one little trick that has made every like corporate interview I've ever shot better is just yeah. getting the incoming window light, setting the camera to that, and setting the LED with the XY coordinates so that it matches exactly, mm. not just the yeah. uh, color temperature. Cause you never know. That's what f made me buy it initially was like, you get a sky panel, you put 5,600 on the back. Is that? It's not, it's not 5,600. Yeah. Do you, do you, no one knows. And so I was like, I just yeah. didn't know. So you click it and you're like, oh, actually that funny thing, sky panel is pretty good at being the color temperature that you put in the back. Yeah. Surprisingly, cool. but the, but the output, the spectral output isn't great. But there's certain lights that are like 200, 500 Kelvin off. And it's like, maybe you don't, don't notice it, but I notice it. Yeah. Aperture lights, man. I'm not, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't get on board. I'm an, I like Nanlux a lot. I love the Nanlux 1200. That, Nanlux. That, the Nanlux 1200, I get some real fucking mileage out of. But um, I, I, yeah, you know, there's just, I feel like I just fight. I, I fight. Like the, the, you know, the new, newer, newer, newer after stuff is getting better. But like when the 600 first came out or like some of their panels, like you can't, unless you're hard lined in, I have so many issues with the iPad connecting to like the, yeah. the 600 panels, it'll flash when it, when it loses connection, it'll just start doing its own thing. It doesn't just shut off like the vortex. They, you know, some of the other lights learn to either hold their, hold their light or they'll just go fully off. And the average will like, ah, fuck you, here's purple. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's, that's, I'm just a vortex fanboy. That's what it is. I'm really just a dream source and then like fanboy and I can't help it. I'm hundred percent with you on that. I love the people that work at Aperture. I love them as like a company. I've never been as big of a fanboy of their product as other people. <laughs> once you hardline it, really great. Like I once you hardline hardline their lights into an actual board, it works really it's fine, no issues. But like I have a lot of, you know, sometimes you can't and I don't want right. you shooting a narrative where I've got an aperture panel instead of a vortex outside and every 30 seconds it flashes purple because it loses signal to the iPad. Like I can't have that. I can't interrupt a performance like that. Right. They will, they will use that take. That, that's inevitable that right. will happen. And, you know, I think it's important to, to safety your own work a little bit by getting the gear, you know, that works right. Totally. Uh, we've got, a, we've got a little over, so I'll, I'll let yeah. you go here. But um, I did a uh, final question because I saw it. Um, another thing that apparently our, uh, we came from the same parents that got separated. Uh, yeah, what, uh, <laughs> what, um, in what ways being a drummer, being like a DP? Uh, you know what? It, you just, you, you gave me an easy segue. It ties into exactly what I was saying about, you gotta just do what's right for the, uh, for the movie. Um, think drumming, if you make it too much about you, the song has no meaning. 
I think you're the ba- you're the backbone. You are what keeps everyone playing on time. And you can do a fill and have fun, and like you can show off a little bit. But if you lose track of what the song is, what it's about, what the dynamics are, I mean, tracking dynamics of a song is very similar to tracking dynamics of a scene. I think if you're not in tune with when things should amp up and like maybe go handheld versus being sticks, or like when the lighting should start to flash and strobe and do some crazy shit versus when it'll distract from a performance. Um, it's it ties directly into playing drums. I mean, you've you've got to be the 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 shadow at the back of the stage, and people are just like, oh yeah, the song works and the drumming like the deal. Like, I I I could dance to it the whole time. Like I don't know why it's because the fucking drummer played very basically and in time and to a great rhythm the whole time, and you didn't even think about it. You've got to be the invisible, the invisible thing that makes uh makes everyone able to immerse. That's what it really is. I feel like some of my favorite DPs. You don't like. I, I feel like one of the reasons Roger Deakins went so long without an Oscar was because he is not flashy. He does exactly the pocket drummer. <laughs> yeah, he Roger Deakins is the pocket drummer of cinematographers. Absolutely, just does exactly what's necessary for the story and puts his own flavor on it. And that's why he's also the legend that he is. But like, never does anything. Never does anything out of pocket. <laughs> yeah. The. Uh... Yeah, the uh, I was just thinking actors do guitar solos, not DPs. Exactly. Yeah. Drum drum solos, John Bonham and Sheila E are the only two people I'm going to let do a drum solo cuz it's like part of the song. John Bonham is the Robert Richardson of drums. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that dude 100%. can throw a backlight fucking anywhere and I'm cool with <laughs> yeah. Wow, they really picked the uh, table to sit under that just has a fucking hole in the roof. That's interesting. <laughs> Equates to, yeah, Moby Dick, basically the song. <laughs> That's basically the, the cinematic equivalent of like the drum solo of Moby Dick is where he chooses to put on like bounce lights and backlights. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> right up. Well, uh, yeah, like I said, I'll let you go, but uh, it's great talking to you, man. Um, yeah, you too. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frameandrefpod. We really appreciate your support, and as always, thanks for listening.